0: About a year and a half ago, uh, Krista, my lovely wife who's somewhere in this room, recommended this book uh, called The Seven Desires to me. It's written by the Lasers, um, who are, what's a great name, isn't it? The Lasers. Anyway, and, uh, anyway but they're uh, both counselors. And essentially, in 20 years of counseling, what they uh, sort of came to realize is that, um, and this is, you know, of course, to some degree anecdotal, but it's based upon uh, psychological research as well. That, uh, that fundamentally human beings have these seven core desires, relational desires. They have seven core relational desires. And over the last two weeks, we've unpacked a couple of them. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and put them up on the screen really quickly. Two, the first two relational desires are these. The first one is to be heard and understood. And essentially, as I looked into scriptures, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, all right, as I look in the Bible, what does the Bible have to say about these, these core desires? And and so, basically, what Scripture, I think, had to say was that God meets our desire to be heard and understood by inviting us to express our full range of emotions to him, and also by giving us friendship. But most of all, God meets this need to be heard and understood by entering into the human experience in Jesus, all right? I think all that stuff is biblically uh, completely relevant, I think it can be verified biblically. Second, Uh, desire that we talked about last week was the desire to be affirmed. Now, this is typically verbal affirmation for what you do, right? That somebody sees you doing something nice and they say, hey, I noticed that you shared your Twix bar with your buddy. Thank you for doing that. It was really nice or whatever. And here's basically what the Bible had to say about affirmation. The Bible has much to say about our desire for affirmation. We're told to avoid flattery and boasting and to avoid doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And at the same time, God affirms us for a life well lived, and he gives, us words, uh, he gives us words of encouragement from others. One of the things that we see happening over and over again in these seven desires, we're going to see it today, is that God not only meets this desire directly through who he is in us and through Jesus, but he also meets these desires in us, all seven of them, through other people, right? And, and so that's just an interesting thing because uh, we have a tendency to discredit human beings and give all the credit to God in our tradition And really, a biblical approach does both of these things. A biblical approach says each of these seven core desires, God meets in himself, but he also meets in who he gives us through human relationships. Now, um, the other two things really quickly. One of the points that this book makes out, and I think they're right, is that in each of these core desires, if especially in your youth or childhood, if you're wounded in one of these core desires or or if you're unfulfilled in one of these core desires, then it really creates a void in you that to some degree for the rest of your life, you try to fill. In other words, that particular desire rings more loudly and rings truer to you than the other ones do. And you you really seek to constantly be filled up in that one uh, desire, right? And and the other thing I think that the book points out and I think scripture affirms is that really the reason we have these core desires isn't simply because God said, you know what, I think it'd be nice for people to hear and understand one another, so to give them that. But rather, uh, we're created in the image of God. And within the Trinity, there's actually this amazing process of hearing and understanding and affirming uh, one another in the membership of the Trinity. As human beings, we have the same created imprint upon ourselves. Fantastic stuff. Let's take a moment before we jump into this third desire today, and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, that the Bible, uh, your word to us through Uh, the prophets um, through poetry, Father, through letters and through books and through theology, that the whole way through, uh, your word um, reveals to us who you are. But not only does it reveal to us who you are, it also reveals to us who we are. And so, Father, in our brokenness, we can look to Scripture and we can actually see uh, who we were supposed to be, who you created us to be, but has been damaged through the fall Father, I pray uh, particularly today in the same way that I pray every day that your spirit would be in this room and that you would enable us to have an encounter with you. And Father, as we encounter you through your word, through the power of your spirit, through the fellow believers in this room, that nobody would be able to walk out of this room this morning unchanged. And so, Father, I pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. All right. Uh so um I was having a conversation with someone this morning about children and they have little children younger than our kids and this person was telling me, you know, nobody ever told us X, Y, or Z about being parents. Like they just sort of left out all the hard stuff instead of all the nice stuff. You know what I mean? Like, oh you're gonna love being a mother. You know, you're gonna love being a dad. You're gonna love this, you're gonna love that. What they don't tell you is that for ten years of your child rearing life, you're gonna get every single stomach bug you know, red eye, pink eye, thrush, whatever, anything that comes down the road and goes through the nursery or through the public school system, not only are your children going to get it, but you're going to get it too, right? You may not have been sick for 15 years, but guess what? There's going to be 10 years of parenting dark ages on the way, right? It just just happens, right? And and so people tell you all the good stuff. What people also don't tell you is that uh, when you have children, you're not going to sleep For maybe the first year of your child's life, right? You know, like, so you're used to getting eight hours of sleep. Well, just get used to sleeping in two-hour segments for about three months and then the rest, it's just mayhem, right? So, you know, when Kristen and I got married um, and we thought about having children one day, you know, we were both the youngest children in our family. We'd never really taken care of babies much. We didn't really know what we were doing. And uh, we just hadn't had any experience in that whole realm. We had read a couple books and you know how that just makes you dangerous sometimes and uh, so when Krista first became pregnant with Sam Pierce, who's now 14 years old, you know, we were just excited. We're like, hey, this is great. We, you know, the rest of life has come easily to us, academically, athletically, socially, all these ways, No problem. This child-rearing thing is going to be a piece of cake. Little did we know that uh, God was going to give us a child who for the first 10 months of his life, uh, if he wasn't sleeping, was probably crying, right? And, uh, and, and not just like, you know, some babies cry and you're like, oh, that's the hunger cry. Or that's the, you know, can you change my diaper cry? Or that's the I'm scared cry. You know, Sam, and I paid him a dollar already for all this, so I apologize, buddy. But Sam, as a, you know, again, as an infant, he just had one cry. And it was, I'm furious. I don't know what's wrong, <clears throat> but I'm, my face is pink, my eyes are closed, and I'm hollering. You know, that was sort of his thing. And, uh, and so it was just really kind of exhausting, honestly. And, uh, and so, so one... He basically cried a lot for the first 10 months of his life. And then oddly, when he turned 10 months, he started walking and quit crying, just like a light switch. Boom, just done. So he, so he cried a lot for the first 10 months. The second thing he did a lot of for the, uh, the next 10 months is as babies are wont to do, you know, there was a lot of diaper changing that was required. Okay, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'm just going to let you know that that's a very human thing. If you've ever babysat before, ever had children, it's happening, right? And uh, so there's a lot of diaper stuff going on and then he ate, right? And so basically he did three things. He cried a lot, you know, he went to the bathroom a lot, and then he ate, right? Those are the three things he brought to the table. Just, I'm just being honest, just keeping it real, okay? Anyway, and you, you're going to have kids one day, you're going to understand this. And, and I'll I tell you what, it was just exhausting, right? It was just exhausting. And so I remember vividly during the first, uh, you know, 10 months particularly of his life, I'd be at work all day doing my thing, whatever I was doing. I was a youth pastor, so it usually involved see do's, going to see movies, and eating out a lot. And that was awesome. When Christy was at home all day with a crying baby, I'd come home and she'd be like, What have you been doing today? Oh, just see doing. Anyway, so um, anyway, but I'd come home and Krista would be exhausted, you know, I've been, you know, worn out all day long. And I'd be kind of tired too or whatever. And so we'd, you know, because. You know, being out on the lake all day is tiring, right? You've been out, you've been there before. You know the sun drains you. Anyway, <laughs> so we'd be, you know, we, whatever. I'd come home and, and we'd take care of Sam together and there'd be, you know, several more hours of crying, several more hours of eating and several more hours of diaper changing, right? That's kind of what would happen. And so, you know, by the time bedtime rolled around, we would, uh, you know, be like, whew, thank goodness. And we would take Sam in his uh, little footy pajamas and we'd carry him back to his crib and we'd put him back in the crib and he would cry for another, you know, 20, 30 minutes or whatever till he finally fell asleep. And then Krista and I would shut the door. We'd go onto the couch, and we would just, like, plop down on the couch. You know what I'm talking about? We'd plop down on the couch. And just be like, oh, we are so tired. And we'd sit there for about 15 minutes, and Krista would tell me, you know, about her awesome day of doing whatever, you know, 11 diapers, 14 bottles, whatever. And, I, again, and I would talk about see-doing. And anyway, so, but we'd sit there, and um, and... It, we would just be worn out, Kristen in particular would be worn out. And, um, and so we'd sit there, and, uh, and after about 15 minutes of sort of resting a little bit, regardless of how good or bad Sam Pierce had been that day, we would turn and kind of look at each other on the couch. It was a very common occurrence. And, and all of a sudden, the, you know, the previous 12 or 14 hours of exhaustion would be gone. And we'd look at each other, and we'd kind of smile with little gleams in our eye, and we'd say, let's go check on Sam. Because by now, it, had been, it was silent in the bedroom. And so we would tiptoe down the hallway of our little ranch home in Gainesville, Georgia, and we would open the door to his bedroom, and we'd walk into his bedroom, and we'd peek over the edge of his crib, and he'd be laying on his stomach with his little buns sticking up in the air and his little green footy pajamas. And again, no matter how bad he had been that day, how much trouble he had been that day, when we looked over the edge of that crib, we would be overwhelmed with a feeling of love for that little guy not because of how great he was or because he was the best or because of anything he had done, but we were overwhelmed with love for him simply because he was our child. Does that make sense? Like, like despite all the bad stuff, we, we loved him because he was our son. This third desire today is, called, this is the desire to be blessed. And it's maybe not the best terminology in the world, but when you start to unpack it, what you see is that this idea of being blessed is that when you were a child, someone loved you, or maybe didn't love you, but, but if it was done right, they loved you just because of who you were, right? And, and really, we all still have this core desire to be really loved and accepted um, in spite of our brokenness. We just want to be loved for who we are, not because of our performance, right? It's a great quote. I don't think it's going to be up on the screen, but you can just leave that up there, Sam, if you want. Maybe it's up there. But there's a great quote from uh, the, the Laser Book that said this, while affirmations are about what we do, blessings are about who we are a blessing happens when someone lets you know that you're a very special person in their life they love you they're proud of you and they want to be with you when we get blessed we believe that we're special in someone's eyes when we are blessed we don't have to do anything we are loved just for being who we are again this desire to be blessed to be loved for just who we are now let me call time out here and and make this clear that uh these seven core desires, again, the premise of the book is that um, if you haven't, if this core desire wasn't met in you, then you're just wounded, right? You're, you're wounded. You've got a hole down deep in your heart. You've got a void that was supposed to be filled but wasn't filled, and so you feel empty. But one of the things the book talked about is this is actually, in some respects, it's the base desire. It's the one that sort of underlies all the other six desires, and if this one isn't filled, it doesn't really matter how much somebody hears and understands you. It doesn't really matter how much somebody affirms you. If you haven't been fulfilled in this area of this, this desire to be blessed, just to be loved for who you are, then, uh, then the rest of those, um, they help a little, but they can't really undo the brokenness that's within you. Now, one of the things we've been talking about as we've gone through the series is we've talked about the different symptoms, maybe, or the different coping mechanisms that present when we haven't had one of these desires met. And so I'm going to read four different presenting symptoms or coping mechanisms that come when you haven't had this core desire of being just loved for who you are, if you haven't had it met in you. So pay attention to these four coping mechanisms or symptoms, and they might actually clue you into the fact that, uh, that for some reason um, you maybe weren't just loved for who you were, particularly in your childhood. Number one is people who haven't been blessed or just love for who they are, they experience shame, okay? Shame. I'm going to read a quick definition that helps distinguish shame from guilt. Uh, Basically, it's this. When we don't receive affirmations, we can feel guilty about things we do. So guilt is in relationship to behavior. When we don't receive affirmations, we can feel guilty about things we do. When we don't receive blessings, we can feel shameful about who we are. See that distinction? One is about what you do. The other is about who you are. Guilt is the awareness that I made a mistake But shame is a feeling that I am a mistake. Okay, and so some of you may in this room may wrestle with shame. You may just somehow feel insufficient, right? You might feel somewhat broken, and uh, and this is one of the symptoms of people who weren't blessed in their childhood. The second uh, symptom uh, is called self-loathing, and and it's essentially this: somebody who is who struggles with self-loathing thinks that you know, they don't deserve to have needs or desires. And so we constantly put ourselves down. We think, you know, we can't love ourselves, so surely nobody else can love ourselves. You know, not only that, but no way that God can love us. And, and it's interesting, uh, in, you know, various points in the last couple of years, as I've met with counselors or, you know, fellow pastors or other people who love me and are helping pour into my life, one of the themes that comes up over and over again with me, Brian Pierce, is that I'm a self-loather, that I'm really hard on myself, and that I'm down on myself. And I've got this internal monologue where I, you know, I just put myself down constantly. And it's funny, because as I'm talking to really wise people about this, as soon as I talk about self-loathing, and I say, yeah, I'm kind of a self-loather, you know, it's amazing, people perk up right away. They're like, what's all that about? Like they clue in on it really quickly. And I was like, what do you mean, what's all that about? Doesn't everybody hate themselves? <laughs> you know, like, that's normal. I just assumed it was. And, um, and, and they would really kind of zero in on it a little bit. But it's this idea, again, that, uh, that something's wrong with me, and as a result, that, uh, that I hate myself, right? Or I'm hard on myself and I'm a self-loather. Some of you maybe have seen this symptom in yourself. One of the other uh, outgrowths or symptoms of not being blessed, just love for who you are, especially in your childhood, is sadness and emptiness, right? So some of you out there, you know, like you can kind of, you're already kind of knowing where we're headed in this, this sermon, these ideas. You know, you're, you know, maybe your dad left before, you know, you ever knew him, right? Or maybe you had a dad that was just kind of mean and grumpy and never satisfied and never encouraging, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe as a result, you feel sad because you know that there's just this wound in you. Or maybe you feel emptiness where you ought to feel buoyant and you ought to feel secure. There's a great article in the 2002 uh, GQ magazine. Uh, Denzel Washington was on the front of the cover. And, uh, and essentially in the article when he's being interviewed, the interviewer asks him about all these different aspects of his life. But one of the little rabbit trails, the interviewer goes down, is his relationship with his father. And essentially, his dad was a a pastor, right? He was a a minister. And Denzel Washington said, you know, he was spiritual, he was a gentleman, he was a decent man. But when I was 14, my parents got divorced. And he said, prior to that, I didn't see my dad much because he was so busy with church all the time. He didn't ever have time, you know, for our family or time for me. And he wasn't saying this in a bitter way at all. He was kind of saying it in a sad way, right? Kind of an empty way. And, uh, and he said, even after my parents got divorced, he said, I actually saw much less of him. Now, I'm going to jump into the interview here really quickly, and, and I'm going to read what he had to say about the situation with his dad. You let me know how it strikes you. He says this, I didn't see him, that is my dad, much. He said, you know, the things I did like sports and other things, he wasn't really into. I guess being a spiritual man or just because he had to work so much, I just didn't get to see him. So once my parents were separated, I was in school, and so 70% of the year, I was just away. In the summer, I wasn't looking to track him down. I was ready to hit the streets. So, you know, you just kind of fade away. Not to say that I didn't love him like a dad, but we didn't play ball and those types of things. The next thing you know, you're in college, and years later, he says, I flew to New York City for a film project, and he said, as I got off the plane from this film project, he said, my brother actually met me at the airport and immediately He says, the first thing I thought was that mom had died. And then my brother said, dad had a stroke. That was April of 91, and he died in August of that year. We started shooting a film around that time that he died, and he said, you know, I never shed a tear for my father. And he says, that sounds like a book or it sounds like part of a song, but I never did all through the funeral and all that. He said, there was just no connection. And when I read that, I thought, you know, that's the story of someone who's just kind of empty. You know, where they should have been buoyant and filled up with their father's affirmation, knowing that, you know, that their dad was their biggest fan. And instead, what Denzel Washington had was sadness and this level of emptiness within him, right? Some of you know exactly what that means, right? You've had that same relationship maybe with a father, maybe with a mother. The last thing that we see that's a symptom of someone who hasn't been blessed, just love for who they are, is that they fall into this mode of being a victim or being a martyr. And this one is, really resonates again with me very much. Um, and it's basically this. It's that you don't believe that you're worthy, and so you, des, you, you deny or you discredit your own desires and your own needs. But then what happens is you feel utterly and completely trapped by other people's desires and other people's needs. And so you end up feeling like a victim. You end up feeling like a martyr. Let me just call time out. These are heavy things, right? And my guess is that if I struggle with these things, uh, then my guess is that probably some of you do as well. That some of you are all of a sudden kind of going, you know, what maybe you know maybe this was missing from my life. You know, maybe my dad wasn't there, maybe my mom wasn't there, maybe they were hard, maybe they wounded me, and uh, and so maybe you're feeling that right now. Let me pause and say this: that if you demonstrate uh, this trait, right, or any of these symptoms, again, you need to understand that these symptoms and these various coping mechanisms, they're dangerous and they actually are going to drive people away from you if you don't deal with them, if you don't find some healing in those areas. The very people who you now want to be blessed by, a husband, a wife, your parents, a significant other, then if you don't deal with these things, you're going to continue to drive people away because of these symptoms, because of these coping mechanisms. And if you know somebody that deals with these symptoms, demonstrates these symptoms, and deals with these coping mechanisms, I would ask that you be sympathetic with them or with me And understand that they're really the product of a wound. There's a place in them that was damaged, right? So have a little sympathy for these people that struggle with this. Now, the question is, because this is actually a sermon, not a psychology debate, right? Uh, But the the question is, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does God have to say? How does he fill this need, this desire in us? So here's what I'm going to say today. And again, this is after looking through Scripture. By the way, the the Bible says a ton about this topic. So I'm only going to talk about a couple things. And so it's this, God... Meets our desire to be blessed by choosing to love us even when we have nothing to offer him. In fact, God continues to love us even when we don't love him back. And then finally, God meets this desire in us through significant relationships that he gives to us. First point, God meets this desire to be blessed by choosing to love us. We call timeout right there. God meets this desire by choosing to love us. I grew up in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. I've told you many things about TR before. But uh, there was a point in my life when I believe I was about eight years old, we had just moved out to the country from Greenville. My dad wanted to have some land, awesome. Moved out there, and uh, there were the, some people that lived up the hill from us that had horses, and they had barns, and they had tons of cats. And I remember my mom one day, as, you know, as an eight-year-old, saying, hey, the neighbor's up the hill, because that's how you talk in the country, the neighbor's up the hill. Um, their cat had kittens, and we're going to get you and Christy, my sister, each a cat. A kitten. And so I remember hopping in the van and driving up the hill to the, this horse farm and driving to the barn. And I remember as an eight year old, vividly, I can remember this getting out of the van, walking towards a cardboard box that was sort of sitting on the edge or out on the outside part of this um, uh, barn. And the woman who owned the land was there. And I walked up to the box, and the box was making noises and it was kind of moving around a little bit. I remember peeking up over the edge of this cardboard box. And as I looked down, there were, you know, six or seven little kittens in there. And uh, there were some gorgeous like gray kittens, and there was a white kitten. And my sister chose first. She was three years older than me. And she picked the prettiest, biggest cat in there. And it was this beautiful gray cat. And she picked it up and took it to the van and went in and sat you know, in the van said, thank you to the lady. Went and got in the van. I looked in the box, saw the white cat, saw the pity cats. And then I saw the runt of the litter that was kind of brown and not really, I don't know, in, uh, kind of undescribable in its ugliness, actually. And uh, which my sister let me know about repeatedly. Anyway, and so I, so I looked at the box, and I looked at the little bitty runt of the litter, and I very clearly told my mom, I want that one, right? And she said, are you sure you want that one? <laughs> you know, and I said, yeah, that's the one I want. So I picked up this little bitty runt, went to the car, and I remember holding this little cat, who for 18 years was known as Girl Kitty, because I'm a very creative child, and I named it Girl Kitty. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the van, and my, you know, I'm eight, and my 11-year-old sister berating me for choosing an ugly cat. I can't believe you chose that cat. That is the ugliest cat. I mean, can you imagine? That's just not cool. Anyway, and, but I chose Girl Kitty, right? I I chose this cat. Now, what's funny is that Chris, my sister, Christy, her cat got run over after two years. (laughs) Seriously, not by me, but by somebody else. And Girl Kitty lived to be 18 years old. I mean, impressive, impressive. But the point is, is that when I walked up to that box, I made a choice, right? And I made a choice that was going to connect me to Girl Kitty for 18 years. I chose to love her, really. Yeah, I loved her. Anyway, and for those of you who aren't dog people, I'm sorry, you know, but it was, it was awesome. It was a choice that I made to love this little feline, yeah? And, uh, and so the point is this. What we see in Scripture is that God makes a decision to love each of us, right? Not because of our beauty, right? Not because of anything special in us. It's just a choice. It's his free will to choose to love us. Here's a couple of verses. Ephesians chapter one says this, New Testament. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, or because he loved us, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, and the one he loves. Why did God choose you? Because he did, because he loves you. It's not just true in the New Testament, it's true in the Old Testament. Look at the Old Testament. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, For you're a people holy to the Lord your God, this is to the children of Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. In other words, what what God is saying, both in Ephesians and obviously here in Deuteronomy too, is he's saying, God made a choice to love you, right? If you're trusting in Jesus alone for your savior, if you're walking with God, then the reason is because God chose to love you. And it wasn't because he foresaw that you were gonna be awesome Rather, he chose to love you completely apart from, from, you know, your performance, right? I mean, the gospel is essentially this. The gospel is not, I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. The gospel is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Does that make sense? Very, very different. But part of what we see in Scripture is that God chose to love you. Let me let that sink in for a minute. That God chose to love you. didn't have to. Right after the fall, God could have said, I'm done with those people, but he didn't. God chose to love you, right? Again, before you had any good behavior or any bad behavior, God chose to love you. You know, what can my children, my three children do to have me not love them anymore? Nothing, nothing. Because my love for them is not based upon their performance. My love for them is based upon the fact that they are my children. And so part of what you need to hear this morning is that if you're trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation that God loves you. He has chosen to pour his love upon you. That's great. Feels safe to me. Second thing that we see in scripture is that God meets our desire to be blessed by choosing to love us even when we have nothing to offer him. Listen to what the words of Ephesians 2 say. They say this, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. What do dead people have to offer? Nothing. Nothing. What do 3 month old babies have to offer? Really nothing. What do little ugly kittens have to offer? Nothing. Jesus, what what Paul is saying here is even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and our transgressions, God chose to love us. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. You didn't have anything to offer him. It was the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast or no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, we are his artwork, we are his display of aesthetics, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, what Paul is saying here is he's saying that God chose to love us in Christ Jesus even when we had nothing to offer him. Now, you guys are familiar with, with people that have adopted before, right? You know people that have adopted children. Um, you know about the Dilbecks, maybe, Kevin and Noel Dilbeck, that had uh, adopted a little, little guy named Eli um, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And what's interesting is when they chose to adopt him from the Democratic Republic of Congo, they didn't know anything about him, right? It, there, was, there was no, there, he wasn't really bringing anything to the table. He wasn't a great soccer player that they were hoping was going to make a you know, million dollars one day. He wasn't necessarily like a gifted child. They're like, hey, we, we know this kid you know, tested really high on an IQ test. There was none of that. But rather, they chose him precisely when he had nothing to offer to them. Does that make sense? And that's good news. And the reason it's good news is because God did the same thing with each of you. His love for you isn't dependent upon your performance. He doesn't love you when you're making good grades. He doesn't love you when you're being a good parent. He doesn't love you when you're having your quiet time a lot. He doesn't love you when you're doing all that stuff, as if his love is some sort of commodity or currency to be removed when you're meeting his standards uh, or, or, or given when you're meeting his standards but taken away when you're not. He loves you. He loves me precisely when we have nothing to offer him. Again, that feels really safe, right? I don't know about you guys. But you know what I want from Krista, my wife? I I want her to love me when I'm depressed, right? I want her to love me when I feel kind of lazy. I want her to love me when I wake up in the morning and my hair's sticking up, right? And I've got weird wrinkles on my face from the pillow, right? You you know, I want her to love me when not only I'm 25 and I'm the man, but I want her to love me when I'm 85 and I'm a very wrinkly not the man. Does that make sense? Like, I don't want her love for me to be based upon what I do. I want her love for me to be based upon who I am. And what God is communicating to us in Scripture is that his love for you is not based upon the fact that you got something to offer him, right? In fact, it's precisely the opposite, that God chose to love you when you had nothing to offer him. That's safe. Next thing we see in Scripture. So God meets this desire to be blessed by choosing to love us even when we had nothing to offer him. In fact, God continues to love us even... When we don't love him back. Okay, listen to the words of Mark chapter 10. This is the story of Jesus encountering this rich young ruler, what they call him typically. And listen to the way the story goes that Mark tells. It's great. It says this And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, listen to this a man ran up, right? When do you run? You run when you're excited about something, right? Or you're scared of something. But a man ran up and knelt before him, that is Jesus, and asked him, Good teacher. That's a clue right there. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or another way of saying it, what must I do for God to love me? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. In other words, I'm batting a thousand right here. I'm doing good, Jesus. And it says this in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him right? We're going to get to the end of the story in a minute here. Those of you who do know the story, you know that this guy went away from Jesus without loving Jesus back, okay? And yet it says this, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he, this young man, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions, Or in other words, he went away sorrowful because he loved his possessions more than he loved Jesus, right? And so the point here is this, is that Jesus looked at him and loved him even when this man didn't love him back. And so again, this is good news for those of us in this room, because guess what? About 77% of the time, I don't love God back. Brian Pierce, professional religious guy, right? If that's true for me, then there are some of you in this room who have the same issue. There are lots of times where you really don't love God back. And what you really love is fantasy football, or that video game, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, or your wife, or your kids. And at the moment, you just really don't love God back. But the good news is, is that God loves you, not because of what you do, but he loves you because of who you are, right? You know, it's not because of your performance. That's religion. The gospel is that you obey precisely because you are accepted. You live a good life precisely because God has loved you. In fact, he continues to love you even when you don't love him back, and that's powerful. Last thing we see in scripture here. God meets our desire to be blessed by choosing to love us even when we have nothing to offer him. In fact, God continues to love us even when we don't love him back. And then finally, God meets this desire uh, to be blessed, to be loved through significant human relationships throughout the course of our lives. Now, I'm gonna have a quote here really quickly from the laser book, Seven Desires, and it says this. It says, parents should be the primary and first source of blessing. This shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, Were they the kind of people who blessed you? Did they let you know how special you are to them? All of us desire to be blessed by both our mother and our father. Boys look to their mothers to be blessed in their manhood just as much as they look to their fathers. Women also look to their mothers to be blessed as women just as they look to their fathers. In other words, what the lasers are saying here is they're saying your parents were the primary and first source of blessing. They were the ones that were supposed to just pour into you, right? They were supposed to be your biggest fans, right? They were supposed to just be overwhelmed with love and pride for you because you were their children. And guess what? When you get that as a child, you are buoyant for the rest of your life. You ride high. In fact, sometimes you don't have enough self-doubt. That's, I'll save that for another sermon there was a virginia state study which was uh, virginia state university study which was quoted in uh, the journal of uh, epidemiology and community health i'm sure you guys have been reading that lately and essentially the study found this it said this and i'll just quote it it said the study found that out of three sets of adults in their 30s who had been tracked starting when they were 8 months old those who had received the most physical and emotional affection and intimacy had developed the most stable and positive emotional functioning and mental health in other words If you had parents that really loved you well, that blessed you, that affirmed you, that just thought you were the best, then you were really stable emotionally and mentally throughout the rest of your life. At the other end of the scale, the College of Education at Florida International University notes that children who are brought up in emotionally cold environments and who suffer psychological traumas such as humiliation, emotional neglect, ridicule, verbal abuse, this is the opposite of blessing, by the way, are likely to reach adulthood with varying degrees of mental fragility, common markers of childhood neglect include low self-esteem depression and in many cases a continuation of the very patterns of emotionally withdrawn behavior learned from parents or caregivers in other words um, your parents were the first people that were supposed to bless you and just love you for who you were right and if they didn't do that then what these articles are saying and this is speaking to me because i struggle with some of these things is that you're wounded. You're a bird with a broken wing. You've got a void within your heart because the very people that were supposed to love you and be your biggest fans, they just failed, right? Whether that was willing or knowledgeable or knowing or unknowing is not the point. It either happened or it didn't. There's a, an article that I read by a lady named Sarah Scherf. She wrote this little article called Still a Daughter, And in it, she talks about her relationship with her father. And she basically says this. She said, uh, my parents got divorced when I was 14, and uh, my dad was a jerk, basically, is what she said. And he left, and he left my mother. And and she basically said, for a long time, I just was angry with him, and I kind of hated him. And so I just didn't want to have anything to do with him. And she said, you know, as I grew up, I became a little more secure in myself. I became a little more confident. I got married. I had my own children and so that sort of the hurt and the, the woundedness, the absence of blessing, the stuff I didn't get from my dad was mitigated a little bit because I had a loving husband, because I had little children that loved me back. I had good friends that also loved me. But she goes on to say that there was a time where my father and his new wife uh, invited me as a 29-year-old with my husband and my three children to go to the beach with them. And she said, we sort of reluctantly said, yes, I wasn't looking forward to it. But I thought it was the right thing to do, and I'm going to jump into her, her article and to just follow along with me, if you will. She says this, at the end of a perfect day of hunting for shells with the little girls, making a sleeping dragon and a sand sculpture, and laughing hard with my sister and finally my dad, we had to pack up the car and pass around goodbye hugs. She goes on to say this, my dad hugged and kissed me. His arms are still so strong and tight She said, no one's hugs feel like his. He told me again how thankful he was that we could be there. And he told me he was so proud of me. And she goes on to say, I have to admit, after hearing those words from my dad, my 29-year-old self was filled, buoyant. I think I can guess that my dad has been proud of me. I'm at least sure that he's not disappointed in who I am or what I've done with my life. But hearing him say it to me, despite all of our past and its residue, despite my independence from him, despite the deeply affirming relationship I have with my husband. And she said, and it was like I've needed nothing else. Does that make sense? Remember how I said that affirmations are great, you know, people hearing and understanding you're great, but when you feel blessed, especially by your parents, that it fills you up almost like nothing else can. And she says, it was like I've needed nothing else. It's a beautiful statement. Right? Some of you didn't get that from your parents, and it's a massive wound in you. But again, God can meet that. He can meet it through other people. Right? He can meet it through himself. He can meet it through Jesus. But he can meet it through these other people that he gives us. It's not just our parents, though, that meet this need in us. It's also our spouses. Ephesians 5 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. In other words, that he might make her Beautiful. In other words, Christ loved the church before she was beautiful. He loves her in order to make her beautiful. Husbands love their wives despite an absence of beauty in order to make them beauty so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, husbands are called to love their wives. Wives are called to love and respect their husbands, especially when they're not respectable or lovable. You love them in order to make them beautiful. God also gives us friends. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, right? That God gives you not only parents to fill this up in you, not only spouses to, give this, to fill this up in you, but also he gives you friends, right? And some of you in this room have great friends. You have people that um, have blessed you and loved you in spite of your brokenness. In spite of your frailty, in spite of your depression, in spite of the fact that you've probably betrayed them sometimes and failed them at times, God's given you friends who have loved you through the thick and thin of it all, and in the process, God has given you someone who can, who can bless you and, for, and can love you for who you are, can fill you up. The message essentially of this story is the gospel. It's, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. It's, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's Romans 8. You know, Romans 8 says this. It says, What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So if God loves you, who can be against you? He he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, in the midst of the thickest, deepest, richest book of theology, letter of theology in the New Testament, essentially says this, God loves you, and if God loves you, that's all that really matters, right? Like, like what can separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ Jesus? Uh, There was a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth. Some of you guys are familiar with him. Uh, He's typically not spoken of super highly in Reformed circles, but that's okay. Uh, He said a lot of very good things, and he said some things that we would disagree with. Uh, But you, you see this picture right here? There's a picture of Karl Barth, Swiss theologian. And you can't see it, but the little bitty letters at the bottom is, the answer is Jesus, what's the question? Okay, The answer is Jesus, what's the question? Now the reason uh, that that is on this poster of Carl Barth is because for Carl Barth, the answer was Jesus. And that's the answer for us at Seven Hills Fellowship as well. What we want to say is that your righteousness doesn't matter, Jesus' righteousness is what matters, right? It's ultimately that because of Jesus, God loves you, that he blesses you, that he declares you righteous, he's no longer angry with you because Jesus is the answer to the question. Karl Barth was speaking at the University of Chicago back in 1962. He was in the Rockefeller Chapel, which is this beautiful Gothic uh, church there on the campus, and he gave this massive, incredibly boring lecture on theology. He droned on for hours and hours. People were falling asleep in the seats. And after he gave his lecture, there was a little period of time for question and answer, And, and a seminary student, a theology student, Asked him this question afterwards and said, uh, Dr. Barth, if you had to sum up your theology, all of your theology, and maybe a statement, how would you sum it up? And Karl Barth, after a long time of boring lecture, said this. He said, yes, I can. In the words of a song, I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. How do you know that Jesus, that God loves you? Because he gave his only begotten son. Let's take a moment let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, fill us where we are wounded. Uh, Father, I pray that you would hear and understand us through your son, Jesus, our great high priest. Father, I pray that, um, that we would hear your affirmations over us um, not only for our faith, but for a life where we have um, tried to live in faithfulness to you. And Father, this morning I pray um, that you would even fill us up where we are empty and broken and where we haven't been loved um, because of who we are. And Father, um, I would ask that we would hear uh, your words um, echoing over us, that we would hear the words of John 3.16, that we would hear the words of Romans 8. Um, Father, that we would hear the words of Karl Barth, that your son uh, Jesus uh, loves us, and we know it because the Bible tells us. Father, please let um, young women and young men and, and older women and older men, let us be filled with an awareness that you love us in the same way that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. Let us believe and know that you look upon us and that you love us. So, Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that I pray all these things today. Amen.